This episode is brought to you in part by B&H Publishing Group. Sam Alberry's new kids' book, God's Go-Togethers, provides a helpful foundation for explaining why God made men and women as a special pair to complement each other in marriage and beyond. Learn more at godsgotogethers.com. China has expanded the number of children married couples can have to three. Home to nearly 1.4 billion people, more than 1 billion more people than the United States, the country is anxious about its future. Under its current demographic trajectory, China's labor force is shrinking, numbers which concern economists and government officials. China first began to regulate its population in the late 1970s under what became known as the one-child policy, although two-child exceptions were made to ethnic minorities and Han families in rural areas who had daughters first. In 2015, the government began to allow all families to have two children. Despite these changes to the law, births have fallen for four years in a row. And many share similar concerns about lack of family leave and cost of daycare that American families do. In its announcement of this new policy, the Communist Party pledged to improve maternity leave and workplace protections for married couples seeking more children. Like we mentioned on our episode several weeks ago about falling fertility rates, many of these conversations can feel sterile or overly informed by political or economic perspectives. We wanted to hear what conversations about family planning look like at a local Chinese church level. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Kate Shelmut, Senior News Editor at Christianity Today. All right, Kate, it is great to have you here. And as I think you know on the show, we have a time where both of us just get to share our gut reactions to this news. So when you heard about China changing its policy to allow married couples to have three children, did anything strike you as immediately surprising or interesting? I think it can be so hard for us as Americans to grapple with what it would mean to have government limits on family size and on childbearing, um, that it's kind of hard to know what the changes mean. So I think it's good that we're going to have this kind of conversation. I think a lot of Christians initially want to celebrate this move as a sign of kind of increased freedom for families, hopefully as a something that would bring about fewer abortions or ways to limit families. So I think that there are some things there that seem hopeful, but I also think it would be difficult if, if you were raised in a society that expected fewer children to change your mindset to think, oh, am I going to have three children now? It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to kind of max out their household capacity just because these freedoms are lifted, right? I think those are really interesting. I'm particularly struck when I heard this news about the fact that what five years ago, they had changed the policy to allow families to have up to two children. And yet, births continued to fall pretty, you know, and they'd fallen for four years in a row. That's what I'm particularly interested in is what happened when it, things moved from one-child policy, which again came with some types of asterisks, but a one-child policy moved to a two-children policy. And why weren't people more interested in having kids? 
was this different at all for Christians? Those are some of the reactions that I have or things that are really making me curious about this particular story. And also we've just been have talking about a number of these conversations in the past month on the show in general. We looked at it specifically more from like an American context of what is determining Americans wanting to have more children or not. And it's very interesting the number of times that cost seems to come up and play a role in that or employment protections and so forth. So learning about how a church around the world is grappling with this, I think will be very interesting for our show today. Kate, who is our guest? We've got a guest here that knows the church context in China. I'm introducing Raymond Yang, who's been a house church pastor for 27 years. He's currently here in the States enrolled in a PhD program on education study at Talbot School of Theology at Biola. And he's a licensed counselor in Northeast China who has done marriage and family training and counseling for more than a decade. So welcome to the show, Raymond. Thank you. Raymond, it's really great to have you. Would you mind sharing with us when you were born and how your generation of Chinese people, what have you guys been taught about family planning? I was born in 1965 and I, I got married in 1995. The one-child policy started in 1979, I guess. I was in the middle of this policy. Personally, I had the, the odd experience. My second child was born in 2001. That was still in the middle of a one-child policy. I had very, very strong struggle myself. And then my generation in total, if regardless any uh, Christian belief, because most people are not Christians. I grew up in uh, Mega City, a few million people. The majority of people do not really worry about that. You know, one child is one child. They hope to have two. And a lot of people are talking about having two, maybe better because, uh, you know, any, any child needs siblings. That's what they concern. And later on, re- realizing that in general, that the one child will have a lot of pressure and later their time to support their aging parents. That's another issue. General attitude is like, it's okay in the beginning. And then people start worrying about it. Do you remember the first time that you learned that there was a one child policy? I was very excited by the time because China was very poor <laughs> back in 1970s. It was like, I grew up in, in a community, I, I could hardly see a car on the street and the kids just playing in the little street because there's no car. And I think I remember when Watch Out Policy came out and the country was promoting the idea of slowing down the growth of population so that people can share more resources and improving life. And I think that was a great idea. And I was in middle school, so I, I bought that idea. That's what my mm-hmm. <laughs> first impression, yeah. Did you have, how many siblings did you have? I have two. I mean, well, I have one. I have, uh, there are two children in my family. I have a younger sister. And so you heard about the, the policy. You're like, this makes a lot of sense because there are so many people that live in this country. When do you first remember some sort of skepticism from either yourself or people that you knew settling in? Um, I would just guess probably in... Later, 1980s, when I start hearing people talking about one child. Okay, it was the beginning when people start talking about raising little king inside of family because one child, all the resources go, all the attentions go to this one child. And it becomes very frustrating. And then it starts causing problems in schools. And I realized, oh, my, that's a downside of one child policy. 
So that I, I think that was the biggest impression I would I had. Did you hear anything specifically from the church or from Christian leaders, even though it was a minority group within China? But in those contexts, were the teachings or discussions around the one-child policy and the general sentiment different than you would see in society overall? This is a very shocking scenario. Well, I didn't become a Christian until 1990. This is the first time I heard the church were talking about one-child policy. That was actually when my wife was pregnant with our second child. That was 2000. I remember I went to a pastor's wife asking her, what should I do? Should I follow the law and just help ask my wife to abort it? Or Because I didn't want to abort our, our child. Personally, I believe that was a murder. I couldn't do it. But I wanted to hear from other people. So I, I started meeting some pastor's wives. I don't rem- remember this pastor's wife i honor her so much you know she was being really christian in my life and i told her what was happening and she just calmly responds like just just abort it wow. and i was so shocked i was like excuse me do you did you say that and she said yeah and i said have you done it and she's oh yeah three four times oh, i said yeah. do you feel shame or guilt or anything and she looked at me like what are you talking about why this is the country's policy. There's no other way we can do. Have you ever thought about that at all? No. Why do you ask that? You know, the conversation one, like, I was, I was so shocked. I was like, I can't believe a pastor's wife was thinking this way. I mean, she's probably representing the, the majority of pastors, of course, because, you know, her husband is one of the leading pastors in many, many house churches. So, and then I realized that in, in general, the church do not never talk about it. Because if you, if you talk about it, it's almost like you're speaking against the country's core belief and the core of the laws. I think that's one of the reasons politically that people do not, do not want to talk about it. But my surprise is that morally people do not even think they need to address that. And if that was back then, have you seen the conversation shift? Are people talking about it more? Are there more people who had maybe the same kind of conscience reaction that you had in terms of what the church conversation is in China around abortion? First of all, I've I've been talking about it with many pastors, and my wife and I have chances to meet many pastors in the past decade. And I think we have brought some some level of impact to different pastors, but in general, I still don't see a whole lot of changes. I guess the only change I, this is not really accurate, but I haven't talked to many pastors who really care about this in China. Mm -hmm. But in my generation, I think especially educated people, pastors, they start picking up this issue and talking about moral reasons of not being not incorrect to do abortion. But the majority of people really do not talk about it. I'm curious. What made you feel that having an abortion might be something that violated your own Christian convictions? I talked to some doctors when my wife and I had the first child, and my wife had a miscarriage before our first child, and we grieved and and we talk we talk about that with several doctors, uh, some are Christian doctors, and say raising up this issue I was out of curiosity. Curiosity, I think I asked to what extent the abortion accounted to be physically killing a person. And 
I think the answer was clear. You know, the moment, the moment of conception, that was the beginning of a, of, of a new life. So I think scientifically, I believe that. I just cannot justify from Christian belief, from Christian perspective, if you kill a person, it does not count because it, that person is not formed, has not formed to a fully appearance of a, a, a person. Uh, life doesn't really, I mean, personally, I don't think Christians think life, a figure, is a body, but life is a soul with a body. So if you kill someone, you kill a soul with a different type of, different form of body. That's my perspective. If you went ahead and had your second child according to your convictions and against the recommendation that was given to you, what does that mean for your position for the government? What's the penalty for violating the policy that at that point was the one child to have a, to have a second? I personally, I think that's God's God's protection. My wife and I were in the states uh, studying marriage counseling, and then we we're talking about during a class. A professor raised this abortion issue, and everybody was talking was talking about, and we kind of like pushed back a little bit because from. Chinese perspective, the majority of people never thought this is a guilt thing or shame at all. And I remember the professor was very, very upset. And he's like, if you were pregnant, he was pointing to my wife. He's like, if you were pregnant, I don't want to see you're doing abortion. Well, and then my wife was pregnant two months after that. And I realized that we were trying to figure out how to do it. And it was right after the, the census in China at the end of 2000. That was the census of China. And right after that, the, the one-child policy was pushed very, very hard. The penalty was, I think, was between 50,000 RMB to anywhere around 100 or 200,000 uh, RMB. That's the penalty. And my income was like 1,000. So, <laughs> so I was like, okay, no, we cannot afford that. But later on, we found out we, we tried to contact our friends and families and see if we can just have this child born safely. And we got answers from my sister, from my in-law who remote areas. And they're like, no way, we cannot protect you. You will be found. It will be forced abort. So we look at our, our situation by the time we know that financially it was impossible for us to afford second child and also even coming to America. But we had visas by the time to come back to America. So I contacted a professor who was yelling at us in, in the class. <laughs> they said, okay, now <laughs> your, pre- your prophecy was correct. And he says, come back. I, I remember my wife was into the fifth month of her pregnancy she flew back she flew to america it was very very traumatic experience for her that she was suffering a lot and across culturally she didn't really she's very very chinese so it came to a point that she didn't have enough money to pay for a burger and so she was hungry at lunchtime and she called me that day and i was like you cannot do this if you really have to do this you can come back to china so i mean i don't want to tell the whole story but it was just it was very very hard i i think the lord just carried us through we had a very close friend who we met before only once and they said they want to take care of my wife later and so the couple went to the church and pick up my wife and, and the lord just paved the whole way until 
the last moment the child was born in Southern California with a doctor who volunteered to give a free service. It was a complete miracle. We wouldn't do that on our own. So with all that you went through, obviously, I mean, this policy affected your family so directly and dramatically, you and your wife and and the way that you just kind of had to change your lives around. I I can imagine that there's so many people who don't have the luck, the privilege of, of being able to travel or or to have the money to pay the fines like you guys didn't have. So I wonder with all you went through, what is your response to the idea that China over the years has gone from that one child policy to a two child policy and a two child policy to a three child policy? What do you think that means for families who are maybe in the same position that you were back then now? Policy change from one child to two child to two, two children and now three children is definitely a a positive thing for the families who have unexpected pregnancy, especially for Christians, they don't have to worry, um, you know, struggle with abortion issues. Although <laughs> I think still the majority of Christians do not really think about the abortion as a sin or is crime. But it's, I, I think that's a positive thing for Christians. My argument is, what if after third child? <laughs> so, you, you know, you, you're coming back to the same page, to the same issue. So and I think that has to do with being really careful about prevention of being pregnant, or at least to prevent unexpected pregnancy. That's one, one thing that I think church should talk about. It. There are so many people who want to have three children. <laughs> so <laughs> in, in the church context that I have, I think most of the young generation will have, will think about two children, but very few will think three. So the three children policy doesn't, doesn't really impact a whole lot of people. I, I've been talking with people in China these days online, just, you know, just teases, Hey, three child now, like, uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, I mean, the majority of people just laugh. It's like, why do you, why do you give me three? It's like you you can have one car or two car. Now I'll give you ten cars. <laughs> what do you need ten cars for? You know. <laughs> yeah, that's a general attitude for now. At the time that you had your second child, it seems like you were also leading a house church at that time. How did you having a second child affect how people talked about having children and? defying the government? How did that change that conversation in your own church context? First of all, that's a great question. And I think that was a very positive impact in our church because, okay, this is the, this is the situation of our church. I'm the oldest one in our church. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, we, we will see a lot of people going through the same trajectory as we, we have done, as we have gone. Once we have unexpected pregnancy, I think the majority of people do not talk, but they, they're, they're looking at us and think, and think okay, now what, you, what are you going to do? Because the most of the congregations are college educated as well. You know, these educated people, they really, they think a lot. It's almost like we are setting up an example. And it turned out that there are at least five or six families experienced a second child unexpected pregnancy, they all gave birth later in different formats. In some family, I remember I had three children. Uh, we have a one family, they have four children. Okay, this is what my wife, I quote her. She said, if I go to heaven, 
I think the biggest reward for me is a group of little child, children come to me and say, thank you for saving my life. We have given our testimonies in our churches to people and try to convince them not to abortion because that'll be too traumatized for them later in their life. I would like to know more about how the church generally tends to speak about family planning in general. What are some of the teachings that you guys have regarding sex in children or how do you encourage Christians to think about those things? What type of resources exist? What's the conversation around that look like? Okay, if you look at one child policy, um, if you're in China or a Chinese, a, a Chinese person look at this policy, I don't know if you know, but the executing of China uh, one child policy, the way the Chinese government is managing this one child policy is very, very powerful. It's basically, it's almost, okay, in, in American context, it's like a federal law and then the federal management Therefore, the lo- local governments do not have any authority of proving any exceptions or protecting anybody. The federal law will go directly into every person's family. People do have understanding that this is a reality, that you cannot really change it, or discussion around this issue doesn't really help at all. That is my guess, even from my perspective, so that the majority of people really do not talk about it. After certain years, people just accept it as a reality. You know, one child, you cannot have a second child. Yeah, I, I think people just passively accept that as a, as a reality so that not so many people are, are really talking about it. Church does not really talk about that. Once you have an unexpected pregnancy, then just abortion is the, the only option and people don't really talk about that either and therefore having sex or preparing or yeah this, this is another scenario the china do not talk about sex or or uh, you know birth control in inside of a church that that's i think that's partially that's a shame issue because i i was invited to teach in big big churches on sex teenagers dating even teenagers dating is not talked talked about in, in the church pastors just don't don't feel comfortable talking about it. So I was invited as a counselor, a Christian counselor. So, you know, going to the churches and they do a summer camp by giving speech. And I remember those students were very excited to listening of sex and, and those issues. And then their teachers, their, <laughs> their counselors <laughs> just shine away. <laughs> they were, they're trying to find place to, to hide their face. <laughs> That that's the general situation. So the church really do not church do not talk about that. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. 
Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I feel like in a lot of churches here in the U.S., when you go in for marriage counseling, you know, premarital counseling before your wedding, a pastor will ask you and your spouse, are you on the same page for kids? Like, when do you want to start having kids? How many kids do you want? You know, how how many kids were in your family? How does that affect your expectations? There's really a, for better or for worse, an expectation that you're going to get married and within a few years, a kid will come and then maybe within a few years, another kid. So I wonder, what would you say is the kind of cultural view of of having children? Is it a, a given the same way that we see it here? How have the changes in the policy changed the way people think about children and what they're for and why we have them now that there's kind of more of a choice or an option to have bigger families. There are not so many premarital counselors in China. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> very, that's another new, new concept. <laughs> you guys this is American. This is American thing. It's not Chinese thing. The one of the things my wife and I have been promoting <laughs> in hundreds of churches. We're teaching premarital counseling. We're, we're teaching how to do premarital counseling. We're giving free materials to churches and teach them how to use it and do premarital counselings. If you look at those premarital counseling, even in Chinese churches in America, because we live in America for more than six years, there aren't so many strong, solid Christian version of premarital counseling in Chinese churches, even in America today. Chinese world is very, very different from the Western world, even in America. Tell Maybe tell us a little bit more about the types of understandings that Chinese culture often takes towards marriage and how that contrasts with the American understanding of it. I think Americans believe premarital counseling can be a very, very good help for them to prepare themselves for a future marriage. You know, my wife and I have been Western trained so much. So <laughs> we're, we're like, we're too Western to many Chinese people here, uh, even in America. I think the general Chinese people do not really believe that. The reason they take on premarital counseling from churches because they don't take it. The pastor do not allow them to get married inside of the church. They just, okay, well, how many hours we need to, we need to go. And generally, it's more like that kind of attitude. Um, to be fair, I think that that's why a lot of Americans do premarital counseling. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I look at that from two directions. One is people do not really like it, uh, do not really believe it. On the other side, and I think a lot of churches have not prepared well enough. So when people go through the premarital counseling, they really they don't get as much as they, they should get. I mean. When I say should, there are a lot of things that they can get, but the church cannot provide that level of quality of premarital counseling. I'm wondering too, Raymond, if divorce is just so much more common in the United States than it is in China as well. And it does seem that there are much higher expectations that if you go into a marriage in China, you will end your life in that marriage, right? Whereas you know, the divorce rate is significantly (laughs) more extreme in the United States. And so the expectation that you are going to stay together with that person forever is not necessarily as high. I haven't checked the the divorce rate of China in recent, recently, but 
my impression is that China's not very much behind. <laughs> oh, really? It's changed. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's very, very bad. Like one of my ch- my children said, because we're, we're talking about you know dating someone, and my older son is kind of a little bit of rebellious in his, you know, he was he was trying to date some non Christian before. And so this one day we're talking this issue again, just in a casual conversation. And, say, and he, he said, Dad, let me give you a bottom line. There are many virgins among non-believers. So I've, if I pursue that, I might consider marrying a Christian. <laughs> That's the reality, China. In that light, people really do not think about living a whole life once into a marriage in China either especially in this younger generation. We call it con- contract marriage. People just, they get married almost like signing a contract. You know, if we divorce, you will take this much of money away. Child belongs to do, belongs to who. It's, <laughs> you know, it's like, why do you get married if you sign a contract like this? But uh, people believe that. We, we should do that. Yeah, that's, that's sad. I, I really do not see a whole lot better situation in China either. One of the things that struck me when I was reading the announcement was that it, it specifically mentioned that married couples are the ones that are able to have three children. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what life is like for single parents, specifically single mothers in China, and the ways that the government does look out for them and the ways that life is made very challenging and difficult for them. If I put single mother concept of America in comparison with the Chinese situation. Americans give a lot of benefit and attention to single mothers in America because there are so many of single mothers here. First, in China, there are not so many single mothers. Abortion is white, like it's widely welcome and it's so easy to get done. And then the girls just walk into the hospital and walk out without any burden. And there's no shame or guilt or anything. It was, there are not so many single mothers, but there are some, especially in the church. In the case that, that I have, there's one single mother in our, in our church that we're actually very close to each other. And she, it, it was a case that she was pregnant with someone else and uh, before she became a Christian. And then after that, she converted and the people, the Christians around her told her she should not abort that child. Well, she was not married. And she said, okay, I'll follow that. And that become, became a single mother. She has to face to a certain level of shame issue because people will, communities will point their finger and say, hey, look at that, that single mother, you know, where she come from. The communities is not ready to help them because there's not so many single mothers in China. The church are not ready to help them either. The church do not have a single mother situation either. The single mother that I have met, you know, she's, she's been suffering a lot. Personally, I don't even know how to help her myself. You know, I'm a, I'm a man and I know that her, she has a son. I know her son needs more of a father role help while he was growing. So I took the child out to play with my sons and she insists to come with us and then it become one father and one mother and three sons, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was odd for me. And it was like, if, what if my neighborhood, my neighbors see me doing this? Like, what are you, what are you doing with this woman? In general, the church are not ready to help them because this is, it's not a very common scenario. 
what would you say are some of the impacts of the folks that go to your church that grew up as children in the one child policy? What type of issues have they had to struggle with and wrestle with as a result of not necessarily having siblings and having a lot of pressure put on them by their society and their parents? I think in our church, well, half of the children have siblings um, <laughs> because we, we haven't done a lot of work. And then the other half, they are a little bit admire those children who do have siblings. What I see is loneliness is one of the biggest issues for those one-child children inside of a church because they, on, on one hand, they don't have the common, they don't share a common culture with their friends in schools because, because of their belief in the things they play or the things they watch on TV or whatever. That's what happened to my children as well. They have, they don't have uh, many friends. So, I mean, the one child children grew up very self-centered. So the lack of supporting each other or serving each other attitude. Because you talked about, yeah, the, the expectation or just the existence that families have, have fewer kids. What is the impression or cultural assumptions made if you saw a family that somehow had a bunch of children? Is there like a baggage or stereotype in China around those that do end up having big families? Okay. This is what most of the Chinese, well, I, cause I, I really cannot talk about families in rural areas cause I, I never lived in there. But in cities, if you, if, if one fam- family have three or four children, one of the reasons they had, they are able to uh, afford so many children. So it's more like financially advantages in people's eyes. So, so most people would admire those, those families. I know. Th- two, three families that with four children, they are rich people. I mean, they're Christians, and they're rich Christians. They can afford so many children. So it's not really bad. It's more something that making other people admire or even jealous. But for those unexpected families, have four, three, four children. I, I've never seen one. There, there might be some struggles for them. I think most of those families, when they come to the point that they cannot really financially afford Having one more child, they probably just sneak out and do an abortion. <laughs> and is that because they can't afford the fines that they would incur, or because the cost of living is high in cities that it's just multiplying? You know, paying for school and food and everything else. The main reason is the later life is the, the financial support for their growth and the schooling and you know marriage and stuff. As far as penalty. The penalty is, is, is an odd issue. I, I still haven't figured out how the government determined the, the amount of penalty because I, I know some famous actor, he was joking, you know, his wife had second child and they were penal, uh, their penalty to that family was, uh, 7.6 million, which is like a, a little more than a million dollars. Multiple children family in our church. I've never heard anybody paid huge amount of penalty. They just, Tell basically say, oh, we don't have money. Sorry, and that was it. Um, the penalty is there technically, but I haven't heard anybody paying big penalty in my my circle. What types of challenges would you say that Chinese marriages face that are unique to China, and how is the church helping couples in those areas? Christians are facing to the similar type challenges for uh, as far as 
to Chinese marriages, marital affairs, uh, marital affairs in church uh, as well, especially among pastors. That's one of the things I need to be very careful too. <laughs> I, I never take on any uh, female counseling one on one in the past decade. Though. So my wife, my wife has to do a lot of counseling for me. And then temptation of mo- mo- money, prestige, power, and stuff like that. Family responsibilities in you know in terms of working outside and working inside inside of family. Communication is always number one issue. I and mean, people say, I don't, you know, we cannot communicate. And of course, cannot communicate because uh, nobody has learned how to communicate uh, between an intimate relationship. People, people think if I can make a good friend, make a good friend outside, there, therefore I can become a very good communicator at home, which is totally wrong because you know, the social response, a social relationship is very, very different from intimate relationship. It's just a totally different. People think they're the same. That's one of the reasons people expect they can have a good communication at home after they get married, which is it's like almost impossible. Divorce rate is very high in China as well. So they have peers around them giving ideas, uh, advices. If you cannot live with this guy or this girl, just dump her or dump him. Divorce is a choice. And a divorce law in China is very <laughs> flexible. It's very easy, especially for women. If you want to divorce a man, probably take you more than uh, no more than one day, just sign a paper and walk out your divorce. So, yeah, one more thing. If I say the in-law relationship is one of the killers in those cases that, that I have counseled in the past decade, the in-law between the wife and her mother-in-law uh, relationship is almost like this is a Chinese scenario. It's almost, almost like two women fighting over a man, you know, the mother fighting over the son as a husband. So it's, it's like we call it triangle dating, something like that. That's a very, very big influence. Raymond, you had mentioned when we had talked about when you were coming on the show that you plan to head back to China soon. What do you imagine your ministry looking like when you go back? My wife and I were thinking one of the directions to, because we both are trained and educated in uh, Christian education, from education perspective, we want to provide Christians uh, with education, especially in around families, so that uh, people can, can can learn and live out a good Christian life in their families, so that they can show and do, they can help other people uh, to know how to live a, live a life that is really abundant, enriched. I think that's our direction. We we want to care Christian leaders and and also. Any Christian who are willing to learn how to live a enriched Christian life in their families. Well, thank you so much, Raymond. This was such a fascinating conversation. I really learned a lot from just hearing your perspective and story. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. For people who have feedback for us, send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com and we truly appreciate learning from all of our listeners about stuff that they appreciated and also had constructive criticism about as well. So thank you to everyone who regularly sends us feedback. As a reminder, we are currently doing a drawing for folks who are leaving reviews right now on Apple Podcasts. And so if you rate and review our show, you screenshot your entry and send it to us at 
podcast at christianitytoday.com. You will be entered in a drawing to win a quick to listen mug. So that is what is happening right now. We've had quite a number of people do that so far. So thank you to everyone who has supported the show that way. And as a result, if you do want a mug, get on that. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. And here everyone gets to share something that has recently brought them joy, as well as where people can find them outside of the show. Go ahead, Kate. My precious moment is that this week it is, you know, that spring to summer transition and the peach stands have opened here in Georgia. So I made my first peach pie of the season. So it's always like a monument of like summer is here. And so I'm feeling all the vibes and I love, I just had my breakfast was peaches on top of yogurt and we will go through a big basket a week uh, from now until, you know, they're available on the farm stands. So that's my precious moment is peaches. Are you going to make peach cobbler? (laughs) Yes. Well, I made peach pie. I like it more than peach cobbler. Wow. That sounds really delicious. What recipe do you use? I used a recipe I found online this time. You can't mess it up when the product is good. They're so sweet. You just caramelize them up, bake them up. It's so yummy. That sounds really great. Raymond also <laughs> agreed with you. Semi recipe. <laughs> yeah. Kate, where can people find you outside of this? Sure. I'm at Kate Shalnut. K-A-T-E-S-H-E-L-L-N-U-T-T on Twitter and definitely be following CT for our print issue. We've got some articles that I edited and wrote in our next edition. And then also we've got a newsletter, CT Daily Briefing, and you can get my favorite links from around the internet and what I'm working on day to day for our website, Monday through Friday. Subscribe there too. It's free. All right. I'm going to share a precious moment that is I'm only sharing because Kate is on the show, which is that the Giants are good again. And I'm loving the fact that I can just turn on a baseball game every day and expect my baseball team to win, which is a great feeling and has not been the feeling that I felt the past four or five years. The Giants, I think, are technically, yes, they're still in first place right now, which is extraordinary. Most people did not expect them to be in first place since the Padres and the Dodgers are in our division. But That's really exciting. The other thing that's exciting is that I'm going to be in the mainland in two weeks and I'm going to two baseball games while I'm there. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to Camden Yards, which is where the Orioles play for the first time. And then I'm going to Citizens Bank Ballpark, which is where the Phillies play. I've been to that ballpark before. Also going to be back in California for a couple weeks in September and looking forward to seeing the Giants in their home ballpark then. So Baseball is very fun right now. Apparently, it's actually really fun to have a winning team. I pretty much like baseball and the Giants, even if they're not winning. But I didn't realize how much more fun it is. When it's definitely more fun. Sadly, <laughs> Morgan and I are both baseball fans, but my team is not doing as well. So I'm glad that you're taking joy from it. And enjoy Camden Yards. That's my favorite ballpark in the country. It's great. Wait, say a little bit about why the Braves are struggling right now, though. I don't want to have it on the record. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I'm an Atlanta Braves fan. We've had injuries, crisis, not putting everything together, bullpen hitting. They're actually playing now, and I haven't looked at the score, but just hasn't been that good a year, but still early, and I'm still watching no matter what. I love baseball, too, so... Woohoo. All right. People can find me on Twitter. (laughs) Raymond said, wow. (laughs) Raymond, don't you go to any Dodger games? Haven't you seen the Dodgers play or or the Padres? No, I'm not. 
I'm not a baseball fan. I don't even know the rule. But you know, I got to watch the kids baseball every day. They're just playing right in in front of my window. Aw. Well, go to a Dodgers game before you go back to China. You will not it's a true, true American experience. True American experience. <laughs> <laughs> All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M E P A Y N L. All right, Raymond, what is your precious moment? My younger son got a job in one of the laboratories in, inside of UCSF in uh, in San Francisco. That, and he's not really driving well yet. So we're taking him to UCS, UCSF laboratory twice a week, and wow. we have to wait. We have to wait for him for four hours every time. And my <laughs> wife said, oh, "We hate to travel back and you know go back in, into the downtown again. So much traffic." We uh, took that chance to tour inside of San Francisco. So <laughs> we have toured for more than three months. Uh, we have been to every corner. I, I start turning off my GPS to anywhere I wanted to. <laughs> wow. So, man, I can, I can, I, I become a tour guide. I can become a tour guide for San Francisco <laughs> downtown. It's just seriously, I, I'm going every street and every corner of that city. It's just so much fun. You know, San, San Francisco is a big city and it's a lot of, there are lots of historical places that really worth to go and take a look. So so what is the your favorite neighborhood that you've been to? It's the neighborhood nearby Bake Beach. Okay. Uh, I don't remember that. Neighborhood that. Is, okay. That, be, that is so beautiful. Awesome. So Raymond, is there a way for people to find you outside of the show? Through you guys, probably. <laughs> okay. I'm not popular. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fine. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Great conversation. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by Sweeps, and the transcript is done by Uni Ashola. Again, if you want to help out the show, send some screenshots of your review to podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts, and we will see you all next week. <laughs>